You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, My name's Cole. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, It's good to be with you this morning as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke, uh, where we've been uh, specifically focusing on passages that are unique to Luke's Gospel. Um, and, and today we come across really one of the most difficult passages, I think, in the entire Bible, um, this teaching regarding the rich man and Lazarus. Um, I say teaching because this passage is an interesting genre as it relates to the rest of Jesus' teaching because it, it's not really built like most of his parables, um, but it certainly doesn't seem to be meant as a historical account of a real event. It's, it's almost a fable in which Jesus gives this teaching with layered meaning that's commenting on the listeners who are hearing him, warning against hardness of heart and, and telling them something about the effects of, of how we approach God in this life as it relates to the next. Uh, it's a passage about death, um, heaven and hell, wealth and poverty, um, and and it is one of those texts where, whereas I've spent the week um, studying and, and praying and writing, I've just consistently felt a, a bit uneasy about, a bit anxious about. Um, I, I think that's appropriate given the words that Jesus gives us. But, um, but I also just, I want to spend a moment in prayer that God would use his word to speak to us clearly in the midst of that. Um, Father, we need your mercy. We need your mercy to show us your truth, that we might believe it and respond to it. We need your mercy in light of who we are in relationship to you. Would you show us mercy? Pray that that as we spend time in your word this morning and and as I seek to offer some amount of clarity or commentary on it for your people, that you would use that for your glory, that you would use my my tongue and my speech and and my thought for your purposes and not for mine, that you would take whatever I've prepared that's unhelpful, that's incorrect, and you'd you'd weed that out and that you'd proclaim good news to your people, helpful things to your people in this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So here in in Luke 16, Jesus presents one of the most grave warnings in in the whole Bible about the importance of hearing, believing, and responding to God's revelation or or how God has revealed himself to us. And he does so through this this story that that we've already talked about that's pointed and challenging. It's harsh. It's fearful. There's a rich man and a poor man, and they both die. One goes to paradise and one to torment. Uh, But Before we look at this text, I think we should look at the context that Jesus gives it in. Jesus has been speaking to the Pharisees uh, and other members of the religious elite kind of in a crowd for a few chapters now. And he's been accusing them of a lot of things. He's been accusing them of rejecting the lowly, of loving their money, of hoarding power, of considering themselves better than others. In essence, Jesus has been telling the most religious members of the household of God that they've forgotten who they are in relationship to God. These teachers, these leaders, these priests, 
in the days of Jesus were corrupted. And Jesus doesn't mince words about this reality. You can see it all throughout all four gospels that Jesus has a lot to say to the religious leaders about their corruption because God has established his law to point to his holiness. He's given his people his law to show his holiness and now the most pious members of the community have made obedience about their greatness rather than about God's greatness. God has established his temple in Jerusalem to be this representation of heaven on earth in which his people are invited to come and and to serve him and to hear from him and to receive his mercy and to feast from his table. And the priests are called to be the lead servants in Israel. So if God is the king of all creation, his priests are to be his delegates, his mediators, his cupbearers. So all of these ways in which God has designed things beautifully to remind his people to be humble before him, to trust in him, to rely on him for mercy and sustenance and life, all of these things have been perverted by the most influential members of his community. I think this is illustrated really well in in the following chapter in Luke 17, Jesus gives a short parable in verses seven through 10. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. See, the leaders in Israel at the time of Jesus had accrued power, and they've accrued wealth, and they've accrued honor in the sight of others, such that they've forgotten that they are not kings, but servants. They've been presumptuous and proud, um, I think a helpful illustration is one of the most powerful people in the entire world is the chief of staff to the president of the United States. And I love the way this office is presented in Aaron Sorkin's famous TV show, The West Wing, because the chief of staff is sent on the president's behalf, and we get to see that. He's making decisions. He has access to the Oval Office to go into the president, the, the presence of the president, really almost as often as he pleases, and yet when he goes into the office of the president, he never sits unless he's asked. He always addresses the president as Mr. President, not by his name. And when he's asked if he will do a given task, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how much it might cost him personally, he responds with these words every time, I serve at the pleasure of the president. See, the president and his chief of staff might have a very close relationship. It might be familial and friendly. And yet, the chief of staff is never to presume that he is an equal to the president. He doesn't present himself to the community as the fundamental authority figure. Instead, he serves at the pleasure of the president. And this is the attitude that Jesus was saying the religious leaders at the time were missing They got so close to the throne that they started to think that they were the royals. And so with that in mind, let's read today's text. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have the rich man and, and, and the poor man, Lazarus. The rich man, he's presented to us as a stalwart in the community. The, the purple and fine linen that he's dressed in, it, it's not just to show that, that he's wealthy or, or maybe associated with, with high-ranking members. It, Jesus is showing that he's probably a member of the priesthood. If you read the, the book of Exodus and the, the other five books of the law, what you'll see is over and over again, the, the garb of the priesthood is described as wearing purple and fine linen. Those words together, Jesus is saying that this rich man, he's a priest. He feasted with rejoicing every day, meaning that one, he's, he's wealthy and so his table is full of, of good things to eat, but also as a priest, he would be overseeing the feasting of the people of Israel for their festal calendar, like, like the Passover. He's overseeing the, the feasting. Feasting at a well-supplied table. He was an important man, a religious man, a man that would likely be considered good by cultural standards, by his friends and neighbors and relatives, and at his gate laid a very different man from him, a poor man, a sickly man, a desperate man. His name was Lazarus, a name that has significance that we'll get to later. And Lazarus has these sores all over his body, so he's unclean to enter the temple for worship. He's hoping, likely begging for food scraps from the rich man's table. But instead of being shown mercy by the rich man, he's left to the care of dogs, unclean beasts, to lick his wounds. The way Jesus sets up this story is important because he's showing us a, a face value version of the story that's, that's important and helpful, and yet underneath there's a, a more broad implication. So at face value, we have a rich man who's merciless. He reminds us of the older brother from the parable of the prodigal son that we read last week. He, he doesn't care for his destitute brother or neighbor. He's religious, but he lacks love for his neighbor, compassion for the poor and needy. And Lazarus is the poor and the needy. He's hopeless without the help of others. And, and, and then we have the second layer that Jesus is showing us, that, that the rich man represents the religious elite in Israel. They've accrued wealth in the name of God. They feast from the table of the Lord, and yet they consider that table their own rather than God's, and, and they refuse to offer the grace they've been given to the others in need among them. The, the dogs are not only meant to represent these uh, unclean animals licking a, a poor man's sores, but they're a metaphor for, for Gentile pagans, those who don't believe the truth about God, and, and those who don't know God. And, and Jesus is saying is, if God's people don't care for those like Lazarus, they'll get care from someone else. And while the tongues of dogs might soothe for a moment, they don't heal, they don't satisfy. Lazarus's poverty is a symbol for, for not only material poverty, but poverty of spirit, a neediness for the mercy of God. His sickness is, is not just leprosy, it's sin and the scars that sin leaves behind. And he's sitting not just at the gates of the rich man, but he's sitting at the gates of the very kingdom of God. And yet the rich man represents the gatekeeper who walks by without notice. 
Church, this is a warning. We must not turn our back on the needy among us, whether physically needy, materially needy, spiritually needy, socially needy. They are not to be rejected by God's household. In fact, over and over and over again, Jesus makes it clear that that he has come for just those kinds of people and that he's sending his disciples to those kinds of people. And so if we don't invite the needy into the grace of God, if we don't meet their needs, if we don't share the blessings of the kingdom, if we don't share the good news of Christ, somebody else will try to. And outside of God's house, outside of God's truth, there's nothing that truly heals. There's just the tongues of dogs. Temporary comforts at best. At worst, the wolves will devour those who are left outside the gates. Jesus warns in another passage that if we forget the least of these, then we've forgotten him. Like the rich man our so-called piety and our enjoyment of what we perceive to be the good life of wealth and indulgence, it's, it's really not going to get us anywhere past this life. In, in death, we won't take those things with us. To forget God is to end up forgotten by God. And to forget the needy is to forget Christ himself. Here's what happens next. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So after their lives and all that they entailed, Lazarus is in paradise and the rich man in torment. His reward was his temporary self-indulgence, the honor and power that he received from men, and those rewards corrupted him. In them, he forgot that he was a servant of the king. He forgot that he needed the grace of God just as much as the man begging outside his gates. His law-keeping made him think he was righteous. His wealth made him think he was secure. His acclaim made him think he was important. Brothers and sisters, be warned. You aren't better than your neighbors because you're a Christian and you obey. You're not better because God has blessed you with wealth and a 401k. You're not better because your life is less messy than some of your friends or relatives. You're not better because of these things. In fact, everything you have is the grace of God. It's not your own. And over time, what we see is that though the rich man intellectually assented to the truth about God, his faith proved to be nothing more than knowledge. We know this because faith works. It works itself out in mercy 
and in love and kindness and humility and neediness before God. Faith works itself out in showing up to God's household bowed low and begging for mercy and saying simply, I serve at the pleasure of the king. Lazarus's poverty, though certainly miserable, it was redeemed. And his poverty was likely even unto him a grace which taught him need and humility and a hope in God that the rich man lacked. This hope, for, for centuries, uh, Christians have, have asked this question in, in catechisms to, to teach them what, what right belief is. And, and this is the first question in a number of historic Christian catechisms. What is your only hope in life and in death? The answer For centuries, Christians have said, my only hope in life and in death is that I am not my own, but wholly belong to God, both body and soul. Lazarus knew that his only hope was that if he didn't belong to himself, but belonged to God. If he belonged to himself, he had nothing. He was sick, he was sore, he was destitute, he was lonely. But if he belonged to God, that he was a son and he had hope and promises that would outlive him. The rich man's heart instead was hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of riches and power and comfort. I mean, what did he need? He had it all, right? Till he, till he had nothing. One of the most underrated takeaways from this text, I think, is, is the beautiful equity of verse 22. The poor man died and the rich man died. Don't miss that. In the end, the poor man dies and the rich man dies. So you can build your kingdom, you can fill your storehouses, you can make a name for yourself and you will die just like the lowliest man on earth. Empty-handed, naked as you came. This text should build in us, I think, a serious urgency. A serious urgency to reckon with ourselves, with our heart and faith, with our posture before God. And it should build in us an urgency with how we will use the rest of the short lives which we have before us. But I think to get to the bottom of of how to do those things, we need to understand why Lazarus and the rich man ended up in paradise and torment respectively because at face value, it looks like just kind of a weird reversal where uh, the rich get torment, the the poor get paradise, and that's that's what's going on. But, But there's a key for us in this text, and it's Abraham. Abraham is the key to understanding. See, he's the one who welcomes Lazarus at his side. Abraham, this father of the covenant promises of God. Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, who was justified by his faith that worked itself out in a life of trust and dependence on God. Abraham didn't know what God was going to do when he called him, but he packed up and went. He believed God. He believed him just because he was God. Lazarus isn't treated to eternity in paradise with God because he was poor and God pitied him. Nor was he treated to eternity in paradise because even though he was poor, he was a really good guy. 
He was invited to paradise because he recognized that only God was able to help him and he believed that God was able and loving enough to do so. The name Lazarus comes from a Hebrew name, Eleazar, which literally means in the Hebrew, helped by God. May we all be called Lazarus in the deep recesses of our souls and be welcomed to the rest at the side of Abraham. Not helped myself, helped by God. See, the rich man knew the right things. He lived a good life, but he forgot his first love, that, that God had given him everything he had. His first love was God, and he, he forgot that. He wasn't punished for being rich. Abraham was rich. But his riches probably did aid to the hardening of his heart toward the fear of God, the hardening of his heart toward the neediness of his neighbors and toward his own need for forgiveness and mercy. See, church, the problem with self-righteousness is that there is no such thing. The the problem with self-righteousness is that there's no such thing. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good on their own. None of us are good. Whatever good we have or, or that's within us is the grace of God. It's not our own doing. It's not our merit. It's not our hard work. It's not our intellectual prowess. Lazarus wasn't carried away by angels because of his merit. And the rich man wasn't cast to hell because of his wealth. His problem was his righteousness. See, he thought he had enough on his own. He thought he had enough on his own. May this be a warning to me and to you, brothers and sisters. Especially to me. And to you who lead in the church. Being a pastor with good theology and a relatively developed discipline at doing the things God's commanded me to do will not keep me from joining the rich man in turmoil. It's not enough. My ability to recite the Nicene Creed, it's not enough. My my ability to, to, to be generous with my tithing, it's not enough. I need to be made righteous. You need to be made righteous. And the only hope for us is to put our hope in God because we have no righteousness of our own. The only righteousness is that which comes from God and he's provided it for us lovingly, willingly, gracefully, and miraculously, apart from the law, apart from our own merit, and through the gift of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself to us through Christ such that if we want to be with him forever, we can and we will so long as we cling to Christ. See, the worst thing we could do is seek to be good enough on our own because if we seek to be good enough on our own, the biggest danger is that we might deceive ourselves into thinking that we are. Instead, we should approach God like the tax collector in a parable that's to come in a few chapters. He comes to the temple knowing his sin, standing in the outer court, knowing that he can't go any further into the temple, and he just starts beating his chest. And, he, and he's weeping, and he's, and he's humble, and he's beating his chest, and he's just crying out, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And then a 
A Pharisee comes to the temple. He enters the inner courts of the temple and he stands before God and he, he says, God, I thank you that you haven't made me like a tax collector. Who did God show kindness toward? The tax collector. Not, not the Pharisee. So don't trust in your good life. Don't trust in your piety. Don't trust in your wealth or comfort or any other circumstances in your life that you think might be evidences that God has blessed you or evidences of your salvation because you will die and your only hope in that day will be that you belong to God. You may own your home, but you do not own the heavens. And your only hope for being invited into them is that you are an adopted son or daughter of God through faith in Christ. Not through your merit, not through hard work, not even through selling everything you have and forsaking riches. This text, I think it it builds in us, likely especially as Westerners with relative wealth and comfort and and all those things, it builds in us this deep anxiety of, how could I even know what will happen to me in that day, right? The, the rich man, he, he was probably really sure that he would be invited to the side of Abraham. How can we have any assurance? And the answer is that as long as you are putting stock in the evidences in your life and in your resume and in the things you do to assure you that God will bless you eternally, you have no assurance. You can have no confidence, but there is assurance to be had. Christ is not giving this teaching so that all of us will spend all of our days anxious and wondering, what's going to happen when I die? Is is God going to welcome me into, into his glory? The answer is, if you have hoped in the blood of Christ, you can rest assured. If you have hoped in the promises that God made to you and his ability to keep them, not your ability to keep your side of the bargain, you can rest assured. And God communicates these promises to us regularly. He does it weekly when we come to the table, right? He he communicates to us that his body, his blood broken and shed on our behalf. That's all our hope. That's all we have. So we feast on it. We don't feast just on the table that we put on, on our tables because of the work we've done. We feast at Christ's table, the work that he's done. So the promise is proclaimed in our baptism when, when we realize that, oh, like God has promised that he's invited me out of death and into life, that he's washed me, that he's cleansed me, that he's made me new, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Christ has done. If your hope is in him, you can rest fully assured, even if you're rich, even if you've been doing all the right things and you're afraid that that maybe you're too self-righteous, if your hope is in Christ, you can be assured. In in the end, the rich man, he wants relief, right? He denies mercy to Lazarus daily at the gate in his his earthly life. But when he ends up in the depths of hell, what's he doing? He's calling out to Lazarus for mercy, saying, saying, just just put a, a little water on my tongue. And there was none for him. Because in the land of the dead, It says a great chasm has been fixed. The reality is that for all of us, there's a great chasm. It's a chasm between death and life, between righteousness and unrighteousness. And apart from Christ, all of us are dead and unrighteous. 
Who can change his state in death? Nobody. Nobody. But there's hope for us today in the midst of that that great chasm. And it's that God has mercy. And he is willing to make even you who are dead in your spirit alive to his beauty. See, the rich man realizes in the end that he's without hope and that he missed it. But he asks for one more thing. He asks for this miracle for his family. He says, he says that I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This morning, if you have yet to humble yourself before the God of the universe and to trust in his son as your only hope, consider yourself one of the rich man's five brothers. He would want you to know. He would want for you to not miss it like he missed it. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus says, you don't need a miracle to believe. God has given his word. He has given his son. He's made his promises. He's proved himself faithful. He's God. You, you can believe him. You don't need signs and wonders. We, we do have a particular grace in that we stand in a moment of history marked by more revealed mercy and grace of God than the rich man did or the Pharisees did that day. See, the rich man thought if his brothers only saw a resurrection, then we'd believe we have a resurrection. We have a resurrection. There's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem proclaiming that all the promises that God has made will and have been kept. But, but what Jesus says is, is you don't need a resurrection. And he's talking in this moment through this story to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They knew what the prophets said. They knew what the law said. They knew who Jesus was. And yet they rejected him. They opposed him. They sought to kill him. They sought to have him arrested. They didn't need to see him raised from the dead to know who he was. And Jesus is saying, and you will see me raised from the dead and still you will reject me. It's not going to change anything. You've, you've made up your mind. I pray that none of us this morning have made up our mind with a hardness of heart like that. See, what they needed to do was just to believe Jesus, to bow before him, to repent, to turn from their love of power and money. They needed to give up their crowns so that they could serve at the pleasure of the king. And so do you, and so do I. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ this morning, this text makes things very clear in a very uncomfortable way. Life is short, death is certain, hell is real. And today, whether you came in this morning realizing it or not, you are poor, needy, sick, and sore. You are much more like Lazarus, even if you consider yourself to be like the rich man. And God, in his infinite love for you, his infinite grace and wisdom has put you here today at the gates of his kingdom. 
like Lazarus. And if you beg for mercy to be fed at his table, you will not be denied. Because the true gatekeeper is the son of God and he has opened wide the heavenly gates for all who would come to him. And if you are a Christian in the room this morning, forsake the love of money and put on mercy. Forsake self-righteousness and put on humility and repentance. Forsake self-importance and serve at the pleasure of the king. He is sending you today to those gates to feed the poor, to serve the sick, to preach good news, to set his table, to prepare his meal, and to send the dogs away and invite the stranger in. And serve and serve and serve him until the angels carry you away. See, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Love him with your heart and your mind and your soul and consider others more important than yourselves. Be humble. See that you have been made alive to the beauty and truth about God. You didn't do that. That's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's all a gift. Every good thing that you have comes from the Father of light. He is your merit. He is your inheritance, your security, your salvation, and your only hope in life and in death. So serving him, serving at the pleasure of the king is the only thing that's appropriate. Jesus says nothing else will do. And so let's lay our crowns down this morning and serve him at his table where he has graciously invited us to feast. Let's pray.